0: My purpose at the present time is, frankly, to get the message across.
1: And my purpose at the present time is to reacquaint you with an interview with Richard Nixon from 25 years ago. I'm Carrie Thompson, and I have been dumpster diving in the NPR archives. And what have I come up with? Richard Nixon, of course, giving advice to the 1988 presidential candidates.
0: I believe Bush will win. In a very close selection.
1: We also have film director Robert Altman who talks about how he likes to take directions from actors.
2: If I did any any film, if it all happened exactly as I wanted it to happen in my mind before, it'd be really terrible.
1: But what's not terrible is the rest of our lineup this month. We have Dr. John and guitarist Leo Kotke and this guy who walked into his neighborhood with a microphone. Just down the road from
3: where I live is this little pond Every night for the last couple of weeks, the peepers, the frogs,
2: have been out in force. And this is what they sound like.
1: The NPR archives are back in business again.
2: This is a very leisurely media, this um, radio. This, This is kind of fun.
1: Okay, so first up, a story of explosive decompression.
3: Officials have still not determined the cause of an explosion that tore open a commercial jetliner over Hawaii yesterday, killing one person. Aloha Airlines Flight 243 flew for 25 miles after the blast and made an emergency landing on the island of Maui. The FBI has sent investigators to Honolulu to determine whether the blast was caused by a bomb, but federal air safety probers are said to be focusing on a possible structural failure.
1: Rene Montaigne interviewed one of the passengers aboard the Aloha jet. Dan Denon was aboard the plane reading a magazine
4: when it happened.
5: Suddenly there was this loud boom, followed by just instantaneously this uh, gush of air as the air was uh, rushing out of the airplane. Uh, People were screaming, debris was flying, and uh, the airplane just, you know, we just looked around. The airplane had broken up. And that's when I looked towards the front of the plane, and uh, I looked in the first class section, and I just thought, I mean, there was nothing left of first class. It was just about six or seven rows of seats, there was nothing around them or above them there was there was no fuselage at all. It was just blue sky i I couldn't see any people up there and uh, i I thought that that all the people that were up there uh had been swept out mm-hmm.
4: well, There is one flight attendant who is missing yeah um some passengers reported seeing people flying all over the plane like you thought people had gone out of the plane
5: from where I was seeing, uh, I didn't see any any passengers flying out. I understand that one of the other flight attendants, uh, uh, she was in the aisle way and uh, quite a few people were actually holding on to her because uh, she almost got swept out during the decompression.
4: And now as you're describing it to, to us, mm-hmm. the, you're in a plane where a good portion of the passengers are, are flying along with nothing around them.
5: Yeah. With just the
4: sky above them and the ocean below.
5: Yeah, absolutely terrifying. I don't, I don't know how those people are going to you know, I don't know how they're ever going to uh, forget that memory. Because, I mean, they were just sitting there in their seats. And, like, I mean, the floor, it was just, the floor was like the only thing left in that section. I mean, there was, I mean, the windows, everything was, was just gone. There was no ceiling, no walls, everything was gone. The overhead values compartment, everything was gone.
4: But of course you kept flying. The pilot kept flying the plane yeah. in order to land it. How long did that take?
5: Uh this lasted probably it was close to close to fifteen minutes that we flew around in this condition.
4: Now he's credited this pilot with with uh making a perfect emergency landing.
5: <laughs> yeah, he sure did. I mean I've had i I've had uh harsher landings in uh in just a regular, normal everyday flight. I mean that this, this was incredible. We came in very low, well, very fast, but uh, he brought it in there, and he, he touched that thing down. Uh,
4: I just thought I would have been astounded <laughs> if I'd have seen that happen. Uh,
5: yeah. well, I think afterwards, after the, after the plane was emptied, and we, it, we, we just looked at the airplane, and we were just... Well, <laughs> it was pretty amazing to see the airplane in its condition on the ground, but to see it from the air flying around like that with those poor people you know, the only thing holding them in their seats was their seat belts. With the wind blowing at them at three or four hundred miles an hour,
4: that was uh, that was incredible. Dan Denen was a passenger aboard Aloha Airlines Flight 243. He spoke with us from his home in Honolulu.
1: Scott Simon was on hand to cover the appearance of this former U.S. president at the Washington Press Club in May of 1988.
6: Richard Nixon has been reappearing recently, as he does every few years. The man who opened relations with China, the man who became the first American president to resign from office after revelations of official deception in the Watergate Investigations, has a book that's just been published, 1999, Victory Without War, and he's begun a new round of public appearances. For a number of Americans, there's something unpleasantly protracted about Mr. Nixon's reoccurring reemergences, like an unsettled divorce, And yesterday, when he addressed a meeting of the American Society of Newspaper Editors in Washington, his Bob Ho profile and baritone intonation could bring back recollections of some of his appearances more than a dozen years ago, promising, when elected president in 1968, to fulfill the appeal of a small girl who asked him, help bring us together again, announcing new bombings in Cambodia, or assuring a press conference, I'm no crook. Nixon began yesterday by comparing two previous Soviet leaders he's known, Nikita Khrushchev and Leonid Brezhnev, to the present General Secretary, Mikhail Gorbachev.
0: Of the three, he is by far the ablest. He is not, not really quite as quick as Khrushchev was. He is, on the other hand, and, had, and much, has much better judgment. Uh, he's just as tough as Brezhnev, uh, but he is smoother. He's uh, better educated than either of them. Uh, as you know, he earned a master's degree in law. Uh, he was born with a master's degree in uh, public relations, and <laughs> he, is a, he is one who has supreme self-confidence, which is something that distinguishes from the other two. Unlike his predecessors, he's so confident of his strength uh, that he is not afraid to talk about his weaknesses. He is also a very skilled political infighter.
6: As testament, he cited the removal from the Politburo, of Mr. Gorbachev's previous friend, Boris Yeltsin, and quoted 19th century British Prime Minister William Gladstone.
0: Gladstone said that the prime requisite of a prime minister is to be a good butcher. And he demonstrated by the fact that he will get rid of his friends as well as his enemies if they get out of line. Gorbachev is without question a good butcher.
6: Mr. Nixon's remarks were well received by the audience of newspaper editors, and the questions they offered were respectful and supportive. An editor from Kansas asked Mr. Nixon if he might be appointed to negotiate an arms treaty with the Soviet Union.
0: I would say that uh, that is uh, a position that should be undertaken by someone who was selected by whoever is the next president. Uh, I don't see a president, either Republican or Democrat, reaching out to someone like me to undertake that.
6: Such a response is likely to inspire incredulity in Mr. Nixon's critics because, of course, there is no one like Richard Nixon. He is the only president ever to resign from office and the only president ever to be pardoned from prosecution by his successor. The editors were particularly anxious to receive Mr. Nixon's predictions for this year's presidential elections, and he obliged with a state-by-state appraisal running through the East, South, Midwest, finally.
0: West Coast, Washington, Dukakis, Oregon, about even, California, the big enchilada. (laughs) Pay your money, take your choice. Very, very difficult to say. But in the end, I believe Bush will win in a very close election.
6: Interestingly, several of the newspapers edited by the people in Mr. Nixon's audience yesterday were running a feature which pointed out that he'd made a similar set of predictions in 1984. He said then that Senator Gary Hart would win the Democratic nomination, and that the Democrats would never nominate a woman to run as vice president. Yesterday, when it came to estimating the possibility of a woman one day becoming president of the United States, Mr. Nixon quoted his nine-year-old grandson.
0: I said, Christopher, do you you think the country's ready for a woman president? He said, sure. And his father asked him, when? He says, about 30 years. <laughs> anyway, there's a boy that's going to go far. I <laughs>
1: and what better to follow that uncomfortable exchange with than a musical interlude from dr john he performed live on fresh air with terry gross
7: right now i'd like to play a little mardi gras indian music of new orleans every year at the mardi gras the indians have been doing this song for forever and uh All the Indian tribes in New Orleans, the Yellow Pocahontas, the Young Sons of Geronimo, the Wild Chapatulas, all all the Indians do it, the Wild Magnolias, all the tribes do this song in particular thing called Ico (laughs) Ico.
8: If you don't like Now what the doctor say you got the Chocomofino I need now by I go I go I go I go I need i and I now and My spy bar To your spy bar um, They were Sitting along The bayou My spy bar To your spy bar I'm gonna set your tail On fire You Talking about Here now here now, I go, I go hunting. Jack and morphine, oh I'm hunting. Jack and morphine, I need now. Well now look at my queen, all dressed in red. I go, I go hunting. Well I bet five dollars she gonna kill you dead. Jack and morphine, I need. me well, maybe she me got bored and crown I go, I go hunting. And I bend my knee But I'm one by down Jack and move I need Talkin' here Hit now Hit around. I go, I go, and Jack and move No, i Jack and move Well I remember they moanin', I remember it well. I can't I, 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 I remember the moanin' when brother John fell Jack and Mofin I need When Aunt Curry died on the battlefield I can't leave Sin win and one turn won't buy one nil Jack and Mofin I need by hitting now Hittin now. I, Keeping in the
7: Mardi Gras tradition of New Orleans music, I'd like to do you a little thing that was written by Earl King for the great Professor Longhair. I had the pleasure of recording on a gumbo album called Big Chief. And this was a a very inspirational tune as well as a, a song that was picked up by all the Mardi Gras Indian tribes of New Orleans. And it goes a little something like this.
8: my we might start up engine wall me big jeepie feeling good me gonna do everything we could me big jeepie got my gang there's in a the white right next to me me big jeepie got my boots smoke my piece by Eddie Blue you're driving, I'm having fun. Engine dance till the morning comes. Final a it burning down. Final a levee burning down. Final a levee gonna burn them down. Final a levee burning down. Final a it burning, burning down. Find a water back of town.
1: That's the big chief, Dr. John.
9: There's a friendly familiarity to Leo Kotke's guitar music that lets it fall easily on the ear of the casual listener. But hearing Kotke up close, warming up with one of his own tunes, you might notice a certain quirkiness. Kotke's music is full of unexpected little twists and turns and sprung rhythms. How do you know? Where to go?
10: (laughs) Every now and then I don't. I was playing in, uh, what was it, in Cleveland. Came out to do an encore and got to the B section and had just, it suddenly just went. I had no idea what the B section was, so I made some god-awful noises and went on to the C section. And I called it jazz, but what it was it was just a mistake.
9: Leo Kotke now has another name for his music, New Age. His latest album, Regards from Chuck Pink, is on a New Age label called Private Music. Like many musicians, Kotke doesn't exactly love the term, but after releasing twenty hard to pigeonhole record albums, he appreciates the convenience I've been categorized
10: all sorts of ways uh, from rock to jazz to folk, all of them literally, except maybe uh you know polka or or gong music or something like that and uh, New Age is far more inclusive than most labels, which is the good thing about it. So it allows a lot of instrumentalists uh, who've either been around for a long time, like, for example, Paul Horn, or who don't fit into any particular commercial slot to be accepted by the industry. I don't think it makes any difference to the public what the label is, but it makes it a lot easier to sell the stuff. a surge of interest in the guitar again right now it comes in in cycles uh it's been a story for the instrument ever since it was invented it tends to excite intense interest and then fall asleep for a while that happened in Europe for about 5 or 6 years up until maybe 81 i had my only uh, riot in milano back then Never had one, and I was very flattered to, to, to see it develop.
9: Back home in Minnesota, Leo Kotke keeps in touch with the rest of the world through shortwave radio. That, along with scuba diving, is one of his favorite hobbies. There's a tune on the new album called Short Wave, which he also performed in our studio.
10: I love to listen. I've, on a couple occasions, I've been able to hear stations that I've been at myself and uh, pull them in when I'm back home. One in New Zealand, for example. And for a long time, I was trying to pull in some west african stations so that i could hear or at least identify rather this stuff called dry guitar which is some sort of style out of west africa and i'm not sure i ever really did identify it but this is as close as i can come to my approximation of what i guess it
9: might be you don't sing on this album Right. You, uh, you once had an uncharitable description of your singing, which, this being a uh, tasteful breakfast hour program, we shan't repeat. Uh, have you given up singing? I've given up singing
10: with with this label, with private music. The label itself is is entirely instrumental, so there are no vocals getting through the door. But I love to sing, and I sing better than I used to when I was disparaging my own voice. She's strong and tender, got an icy heart She lives in the mountains, makes the mountains fly To see her in the evening when the moon is high Makes a madman shiver, the
8: lover cry.
10: It may be that the voice is the best instrument there is. And, uh, although all of my vocals are sung as an excuse to play the guitar track behind them.
9: Do you get the same sort of thing that say, um, rockers would have for Eric Clapton? I mean, you know, there—it's Leo Kotke, there is his pick, you know, there is a string broken by Leo Kotke.
10: Yeah, that does happen, but there are variants uh, which seem to happen more often for acoustic players. Uh for example, I was sitting in a bar in Oneonta, New York a few years ago. I'd ordered a drink and a woman sitting next to me when I signed my name on the, you know, on the bill, said, Are you Leo Kotke? And I said, Well yeah. And uh I guess I expected to hear, gee, I, I just love your music. And what I heard was there was a guy across the hall from where I used to live who played your record so much that I had to play Blue Oyster Cult to drown you out. <laughs> and as she spoke, she got madder and madder at me for having intruded on her life like that. It's, uh, it's not wise to expect it. Just because somebody's recognized you, they think you're a good guy. ¶¶
1: That was Bob Edwards talking to guitarist Leo Kotke. And now it's back to the Primordial Swamp with producer Jim Mintzner. Just down the road from where I
3: live is this little pond. Every night for the last couple of weeks, the peepers, the frogs, have been out in force. And this is what they sound like. The other night I was out walking my dog. and I heard the peepers. All of a sudden, this other layer of sound came in. It was a different pitch, a different rhythm and quality than the Peeper's. It's pretty much just one sustained tone. i got to tell you, I have no idea what this is. And in a way, it doesn't matter. Purely as a sound, I think it's something to listen to without even trying to identify what's making it. Not knowing what this sound was and hearing it in this country road in the middle of the night with no lights on anywhere, it had this real quality of mystery for me. Now, probably there's somebody out there listening saying to themselves, oh, that's easy, I know what that is. So I would just ask you a small favor that if in fact you can identify this sound, please don't tell me.
1: now, here's Terry Gross.
11: My guest is film director Robert Altman. He had his first hit in 1970 with the film MASH. The spontaneity and risk-taking MASH was praised for became Altman's trademarks in his subsequent films, such as McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Nashville, and Three Women. Altman's recent films have bombed at the box office, but now he's having success on TV and cable. He directed the remake of The Kane Mutiny, which was recently broadcast on network TV. And for HBO, he's directing the Tanner 88 series, written by Gary Trudeau, the creator of Doonesbury. Tanner 88 stars Michael Murphy as a former congressman named Jack Tanner, who is a late entry into the Democratic presidential primaries. Tanner 88 is shot documentary style on the campaign trail. In fact, Murphy has run into a couple of the real candidates who have ended up doing cameos on the series. Several other politicians and advisors have played themselves in episodes of Tanner. Altman describes this comedy as a chance to show through fiction the inner workings of a political campaign and how dependent the candidates have become on campaign directors and media directors. In the opening scene of the series, Jack Tanner was interviewed on a New Hampshire TV program before a studio audience. Who
0: is Jack Tanner and where did he come from? Good morning, Mr. Tanner. Good morning, Jack.
2: Nice to meet you. Where did you come from? East Lansing, Michigan.
7: (laughs) And Warm Springs, Georgia.
8: (laughs) San Antonio, Texas. And
2: how about Walla Walla, Washington? (laughs) Riverside, California. And... uh, Pearl Harbor. Well, let's not forget Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. You
5: know, I was born in Pearl Harbor. You know, I have to say, uh, Jack, you sound like George Bush a little bit, the vice president. It's hard to know what state he's from. Well, that's true, but
2: I, w- I actually lived in all these states. I was an Air Force dependent, and uh, as you know, um, when you're an Air Force dependent, you move around a lot.
11: Robert Altman, welcome to Fresh Air.
2: Thank you very much. I'm Fresh Air. I I, <laughs> I need.
11: It seems that in a lot of your work, you've wanted to uh, incorporate some of the unpredictability of life into your films. Now, following a fictional candidate down a real campaign trail seems like a perfect way of doing that.
2: It, it's the it's the most fun I've I've ever had in anything I've done. It's it's uh, it's the closest to the kind of uh, things I've been edging up to or getting trying to get people to do, um, because we're really dealing with um, a, a sense of truth, uh, not facts, but truth.
11: I've read that you used to get fired a lot when you were working in television. Well, did you break uh, a lot of the rules?
2: Well, I broke a lot of their rules. <laughs> I guess I don't. I don't know. Um, uh, I got replaced a lot. I think
11: I, that's the word for it. huh? Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> are terminated. But uh, at television, um, uh, in in the, when I started uh, in the '60s. In the late 50s, uh, everybody was trying to get into the feature film business because that was the, that was the class, that was the quality, and um, television was a, a stepping stone. And Although um, uh, I, I spent a lot, I did many, many, many hours of television. And then when I got into features, it's a matter of uh, allocating your time. I just didn't do any television for a while. But now I think it's it's more interesting, especially with cable. Most of these things that you're talking about, the canner, of course, is on cable. Mm-hmm. We don't have censorship restrictions. we don't have uh I don't have to worry about having a show on every uh half hour, every week. uh I don't have to worry that the half hour has commercial breaks and where they come. There are no commercial breaks. The show is roughly a half hour. Sometimes it's 28 minutes, sometimes it's 31 minutes. They don't care. So it's um, it's every about every two weeks that we go on the air. So it's very leisurely. And, of course, uh, ultimately I think the biggest uh, uh, market for this will be, for Tanner, will be uh, in the cassette market.
11: Mm-hmm. When you started doing television, what were some of the things that you used to do that would get you into trouble?
2: Well, I'd have actors talk at the same time. <laughs> and uh,
11: Like in real life.
2: Yeah, and we would just... There were lots of restrictions, and people had ideas that... Uh, uh, I didn't get fired all that much. I was kind of successful, as a matter of fact, in,
11: mm-hmm.
2: in television.
11: One of your... Well, I think your first really big hit was M.A.S.H., now, from what I understand, 14 directors turned it down, and then you accept. Is that right?
8: Well,
2: I suppose that's right. There were, you know, it was a, a cheap little script, and nobody thought very much of it. And, uh, um, you know, none of the serious, big-money directors wanted to do it. And uh, I read uh, Ring Lardner's script, uh, screenplay. I read the book also. There was a little novel, which was just terrible, but the script had something in it that was very interesting to me, and uh, and I agreed to do it.
11: What was it that was so interesting? It, it
2: had to do with the with the truth about the Vietnam War, or about an Asian war, as I should say, and um, the um, of, of what goes on and and the attitudes and uh, uh, you know it's not it wasn't a, wasn't about heroes and. Winning and killing the enemy—it was about, you know, the only gunshot in it was at the halftime in a football game, and yet these we made these operations and the the, the pain and really real, and uh, to, tried to make my idea was to that every for every laugh and it was outrageous. By that I mean we nothing was sacred. The, the cheaper, the more base the joke was, the better. But for every laugh the audience had, they had to pay a little bit for it.
11: Pay with... Uh...
2: Well, with, with, with... Ooh, wait a minute. This is... There's somebody really being... Really being damaged out there. There's somebody mm-hmm. really being hurt.
8: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um... It, um... Uh, it was not to be continued. It was a, a film that... That in the end said, This is just a movie. The real thing is worse than that. And... Um, it became a series after that, which I had nothing to do with, and I, I don't, didn't approve, and don't approve of that series because that was strictly it's a commercial venture, and uh, what it did is for 12 years, uh, it said there's a an Asian war in your living room every night, and no matter how we, no matter what platitudes they said in those scripts. Or uh, little niceties. It still said that the they were the bad guys and we're the good guys, and uh, I just think it was a, a very it was very bad propaganda.
11: Mm-hmm. But
2: um, I mean, it wasn't what we had in mind, and it wasn't what the film was about.
11: Your early films gave you the reputation, films like *Mash* and *Nashville*, of being a director who likes to have the actors improvise a lot while the film is being shot. Do you think of yourself as that kind of director who goes after improvisation?
2: Well, I, we go after the illusion of improvisation or the illusion of, of truth. Uh, uh, the, these things are very are always rehearsed. Uh, the, the actual, any improvisation that's done on any, uh, any of the projects I've ever been involved with, whether it's uh, theater or film or television, uh, it's always in the rehearsal stage. And we arrive at, at something... Uh, it's very much the way we, that we're doing the Tanner things now. I mean, the, the improvisation is necessary because we—I'm not going to sit there and have a script for for people like Bruce Babbitt or uh, real people. So that is true improvisation for for the actors.
11: Why do you like that? Why are you interested in that?
2: Well, I just think it's a different kind of theater it's uh, It gives the audience the, as I say, the illusion of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do we're not we're not trying to give them reality we're not trying to give them facts we're trying to give them truth and the illusion of reality
11: now as a director, what kind of preparation do you have to do with actors that you're working with uh, to to get that kind of illusion so that so that they can work within the structure and have it look improvised or improvise within that structure? Well,
2: they do all the the work they're the artists uh, i don't do much of anything i in fact, I do my very best. To talk as little as possible to uh, to actors uh, about what it is they're doing. I mean, I, I try to give them ideas, let them see what I give them options, but they have to come up with uh, with these characters. If if I did any any film, any piece of work I've ever done, if it all happened exactly as I wanted it to happen in my mind before, it'd be really terrible. <laughs> Uh, but these people, these actors, come in. They become these characters, and they fill out the whole, um, the whole life of them. You,
3: you and they bring
2: things into me that I've never seen before, or thought of, or dreamed of. And and I'm sitting here watching this unfold. It's like it's like doing a mural with where the paint, the pigment, the paint is living. So I I put the green up on the on the. Uh, on the canvas and it it has its own life and it moves toward the the yellow and it moves away from the red and all this I put it in certain places but it forms its own the, the picture becomes that
11: You had a period of a few years where none of your films were really making it commercially films like Health and Quintet a Wedding even Fool for Love which I think got a lot of critical praise never really made it commercially um, do you want to go back into movies now or do you feel like you have
2: Well, I don't that's um that's all marketing. You mean they weren't they didn't mar- they didn't sit, suit the market. Uh those films were to me uh, highly successful films.
11: Mm-hmm. A
2: Wedding is uh one of the quintet. Uh those are all I mean, I don't I have very few films that I uh then i don't that we didn't achieve what we set out to do uh we, if we didn't achieve what the people who sell them set out to do that really is their problem uh, the problem with making films now i sure i i've got lots of films i'd like to make but i don't think anybody's going to give me the money to make them because i don't think i can or will make the films that they want to make that serve this existing market Uh, it, It seems to me that art is something that you should do, and people should come and find its way to it.
11: Okay, well, thank you very much for talking with
1: us.
2: Thanks for the fresh air.
1: Hey, and thank you for the fresh air. And thanks for hanging out while Playback went on hiatus as we moved our precious archives to our new headquarters in Washington. It is really great to be back. I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're listening to Playback.